you're listening to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in, and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. I'm Jonathan, and tonight we're going to be discussing two episodes, Empire Day and Gathering Forces. And joining me in on this conversation are Nathan. Hey everybody, good episode to be on. Barrent. Hey everybody. Yeah, Jonathan, we're going to deal with these two episodes a little bit different this time you know it's kind of like our first arc if we can call it an arc two episode arc so we're going to kind of deal with it like it's one big movie and we're going to see how it goes and i was able to secure a special guest star for this episode and i'm pleased to introduce brock well thanks for having me jonathan i'm very happy to be here and i can't wait to uh to start up, I, mean, I can't believe you actually secured me for a two-parter. Well played, sir. Well played. Yes, it's all fitting into my plan. <laughs> so, yes, as Baron has said, this is kind of our first arc two-parter, which is something that Rebels really hasn't been giving us. It's been giving us sort of these one-off episodes. We've been calling them filler, but I think that this arc shows us that there is no such thing in Rebels. Now, before we get into the actual meat of the episodes, why don't each of you give me your opinion or your overall impression of the this two-parter, this duology? And, you know, as he's our guest, why don't we start with Brock? <laughs> it was good. I really liked about this episode is that it was so dense with plot and so strong with character and it was going along so fast, yet I didn't feel like I was falling behind at any step. It just kept my attention throughout, and I'm so glad they broke it into two parts. And sometimes when they have two parts in some things, kind of one part's better than the other and kind of has, as you guys mentioned before, filler. Here, man, they had a story to tell, and they told it really, really well. So I was extremely pleased with these two parts and how they worked together. You know, it's, it's interesting to see that they're taking a more... And I've made the reference plenty of times on the show. It seems like they're taking more of sort of a Babylon 5 approach to this in that we don't really need arcs. Uh, someone on the Facebook page, uh, forgive me, I forget who it was, uh, made the reference that it really sort of feels like, in a sense, the season is designed as one big movie or one big mini-series, because now we're finding that things like Out of Darkness actually play a more pivotal role than we realized in the overall season. Uh, really, everything but fight or flight, in a sense, has done that at this point. So to see all those things come together, that was terrific. And I would say, you know, this series, it's done pretty well on pacing. It's had a couple of episodes that were a little bit slower, uh, Droids in Distress, for instance, or Fight or Flight, because of that lack of density of plot that Brock mentioned. But I think back to the last time we got a story of this length in this series, Spark of Rebellion. And that one had pretty decent pacing. 
It just kind of took you along. It didn't feel like there was a lot of dead spots, but you didn't feel like you needed to then turn around and go back and rewatch it again to pick up more. And it certainly didn't feel like when you got to the end, ooh, I need more now, or that's it, when the last scene finally came around. This time, with these two episodes, I watched them individually, and have now watched them twice, thinking of it as one hour-long, essentially, episode, back-to-back. And I've got to say, each time I felt like I was picking up more as I went along, it seemed like the pacing just zips you right along. It doesn't feel like you're watching about 40, 45 minutes worth of show. And still, at the end, I'm left feeling, that's it, I want more. This is the first time, really, that this series has grabbed me like that, even with Rise of the Old Masters, which was really, really good, but didn't really have that sort of compelling push towards wanting more, especially now that we're heading into a brief hiatus until the series pops back up in January. So, for all accounts, great pair of episodes, and has really hit the notes that has raised the bar again for this series. Nathan, by the way, it was me on the Facebook page that said that. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right, it does raise the bar. Not only does it raise the bar, what these two episodes do is it will build a lifelong fan. And when I go back to and think of some of the really good episodes, one of the ones I some of the ones I liked back in the Clone Wars that actually build up built me as a fan, like I love this show. They were far and few in between. And this is what these episodes did for me. I mean, there was a couple times where I just was I got chills. I mean, straight up chills. I've watched it two or three times and each time it still gives it still gives me chills. And these are the type of episodes that I needed to really like these characters and have some sort of emotional investment in the characters that I did not have. And I have that now. And these are great episodes. And the season is building like it's one big movie. And it makes sense that Filoni wanted to give this a different feel. And again, when I spoke with him and when he spoke with the crowd at uh, WonderCon, he really said that he wants this to have a different feel than the Clone Wars, and we're getting that. And we're going to get into this into this episode, but I, I would argue that these two episodes were the best, were the best of this season. And I, I just can't wait to see what else is coming up. And I think I have to agree with all three of you. This duology really was engaging. I've liked 99% of what we've gotten from Rebels so far. I've enjoyed, at least in some way, every single episode. But like Nathan said, this one grabbed me in a way that the others haven't. And I was thrilled to see them pick up threads from the earlier episodes and, again, continue to build our characters. This duology really centered, I think, a little bit more on Ezra and his backstory. But it all feels so cohesive. And I think we had... A lot of our questions answered, and I think we have a lot of new questions. So I'm really excited to get into this pair of episodes. You know, one thing about this particular pair of episodes, and this is just something that I want to throw out there because it's probably something we could talk about over and over again throughout the episode in smaller nuances, so maybe just to lump it together. It seems like one of the criticisms this series is getting is that it doesn't seem as though the characters, the backgrounds and such, are as detailed as a lot of fans seem to want. I don't know what they are wanting, right? Because we had the Clone Wars where half the time Dooku and Obi-Wan looked like they were made, you know, chiseled out of stone or something or out of wood. But 
what I seem to notice a lot more in this pair of episodes is there's a lot of care taken to the nuances of character movements, eyebrow quirks, and so forth. Uh, the brief moment of Kanan waving his hand in front of Sibo's face, you know, like, wow, he's really out there, and so forth. It seems as though a lot of care is now being taken to the little things that early on in the Clone Wars, we really didn't see. It seemed like the care there was taken to try to create this broad tapestry, and we only seem to get those nuanced elements to the character animations as we got into, like, the back part of Season 3, and especially then into 4, 5, and 6. Here, yeah, the character models may seem a little more simplistic in some respects, but man, they are really laying on the small nuances in a way that makes this feel more human. It makes it more easy to connect with, like in many ways the classic trilogy was for so many compared to the prequels of the Clone Wars. So this episode kicks off with another example of Kanan's stellar training of Ezra. And what does he do? But tells Ezra he needs to let go and connect to a Lothal cat that he proceeds to hit with a rock. Really glad the ASPCA doesn't have a local office. And I gotta say, the way this opens up, you would feel like this would be a one-episode thing. If this was the Clone Wars, then we would see this training session and the fact that he's needing to pacify this particular animal by letting go of the things that stand in his way, and he's, you know, you know, maybe I just won't become a Jedi, and all that stuff that's bothering him about Empire Day. We would see it in this episode, and that would be it. And next week, we get some kind of a, you know, a galaxy torn by war. Look back at this episode. But the character beats that we got from this one wouldn't necessarily carry over into the next one. It would be an arc, but it wouldn't feel like one film, so to speak. In this case, this opening scene is directly impacting where we go at the end of this arc and the character development for Ezra beyond just force abilities here. I thought that was pretty profound, despite saying, you know, to be continued... This was a week apart in its airing, and it never really seemed like the Clone Wars trusted that week apart gap to give us the character beats and the parallels in storytelling between episodes that this episode, or this pair of episodes, just did for us. You know, Nathan, when I watched the first episode, and when the second one became available on Disney XD, I actually went back to watch the first one again before watching the second. So what you're talking about here became abundantly apparent uh, on that first viewing of the second episode for me. I didn't have to go back and see it the second time around. You, you know, you're following what I'm saying? So I was hoping that most people would watch it that way. We've already talked about this. A few of you have already talked about this, about how it's one big episode. And so here is the first example of what they're doing to set the whole thing up. And it's a real, it seems to me that it, maybe it wasn't designed as a two-parter. It was designed as one long episode, and then they cut it in half and at a perfect place to do so. It, maybe that's what happened. Uh, but yeah, it really worked well. And on the third viewing, again, when I watched it again, I loved how it was dropped in there in the beginning. And it made me love the episodes even more. And I was looking out for that sort of stuff. And boom, right away, you get it. You know, Brock, I think you make a good point there. I'm not sure this was written as two separate episodes. It may have been just supposed to be one long hour episode. Because it is so seamless. And I know we'll get to it a little bit, but the other thing that kind of stands out to me is with the Clone Wars, as Nathan said, you would have gotten that sort of flashback to what happened last week. You didn't get that in this. They went straight through. It was just, it just picked up 
and they assume that you've already seen it and that you already know. They didn't need to slow anything down by giving us a recap. Which is odd because usually you get one or the other, right? Usually with the series, you get something that's self-contained, leading into something that's self-contained, even if it's meant to be an arc. There's no, you know, here's what happened last time, and there's no to be continued on the first part. This time, we got a to be continued, but that would almost always be followed up with the first episode or the next episode beginning with, you know, last time on Star Wars Rebels. No, instead it goes straight in. I have to wonder how this will eventually appear on DVD. If it's going to have this to be continued still tacked onto the one episode and nothing leading into the second, or if this really will be edited into a single episode. The Spark of Rebellion really isn't the test right now because we've yet to see that, I don't think splitting it two parts for any airing. So we don't really know how they deal with the idea of a two-part storyline when it comes to subsequent releases. What we're referencing is Ezra makes a joke about, give me the lightsaber, I'll show this cat what's what. And I'm paraphrasing, but (laughs) the dialogue's a little better than what I just said. And that is a direct uh, link to later on in in the second episode. And when that happened, the first time, Kanan's expression, you, you mentioned before, Nathan, about the expressions on faces, yeah, you saw his look was fantastic and, and subtle, and it was uh, a good reaction, but hey, you would never know what's going to foreshadow something until you watch the second episode. Actually, even the training of Ezra in the beginning, not with just the lightsaber, but of, of trying to connect with the animal itself comes back, and both of those things I think uh, Nathan was referencing as well. So, mm. I mean, it's just smart, smart storytelling. And he needs to let it go, and given that this is Disney, I can't wait for the re-release with a sing-along that includes the song from Frozen, and eh, never mind. Hey, I'll tell you what, if this is what Disney is doing with Star Wars, and I said this before, he, they know exactly what they have with Star Wars, and if this is their influence on Star Wars, I'm all for it. Now, if only we had a full season worth of episodes, but that's another story. Ezra and Kanan kind of end their training session with Ezra saying that this really isn't a good day for him and it's never a good day. And Kanan tries to get him to tell tell him what's bothering. And Ezra is reluctant and they can't go any further because a trio of TIE fighters approaches the town where the group is kind of holed up. And the two of them hightail it into the town to see what's going on. And so we see these three TIE fighters kind of land next to a bar. And I know we've seen a TIE fighter land, but this is something new. I, I never really would have expected the TIE pilots being the the kind to do, I guess, ground reconnaissance because the three of them go into the bar that the group is in. And I really loved this bar. Did you guys catch the uh, the vehicle on the front of it? Part of a Republic gunship, isn't it? It's not just a Republic gunship. It's one of the ones we saw in the Clone Wars. It's the Crumb Bomber with a little picture of Salacious Crumb dropping you know, dropping missiles or dropping bombs on the side. Hmm. So another nice callback to Clone Wars. What was really cool here also on the inside was that they got the Ithorian right. I mean, how many times do we see them in the Clone Wars, but they're usually background characters or something like that, so we don't really need them to vocalize and to really see how they have to talk out of the mouth, kind of on the sides of their throat and everything. And here, you've got this contraption on them, exactly like something pulled out of the Legends continuity that we know that Filoni looks to for inspiration rather than necessarily tying directly into it, and here we go, an Ithorian speaking like an Ithorian should in the minds of so many Expanded Universe fans out there. I thought that was pretty awesome that they would 
delve into that instead of going for the way they've been portrayed so many times in the past where they just are walking around without anything and everybody just kind of assumes, well, maybe they can talk basic. Now we actually see how it works. I was going to ask you, Nathan, about if we've ever seen an Thorian talk out of the sides of the mouth before. And we all are familiar with the expression about talking out of the side of your mouth, right? And that kind of got me because I know from EU reading that Thorians are generally trusted by, I guess, the nice people. I don't think there's a lot of evil Thorians running around, but of course you would know better than I, Nathan. So I was going to ask you, this is the first time then you've confirmed that there we see actually Thorians talk out of the sides of their mouth. That's interesting. Though so speaking of the idea of falsehoods and whatnot, did you notice, and I, I didn't notice until they, they mentioned on the StarWars.com episode guide, that when they are showing that Empire Day broadcast for Palpatine, they're showing him before his disfigurement and using it as propaganda for Empire Day, even though that must be before he declared the Empire. And they reference the fact that this is something that dictators often do showing a younger, more virile self in publications and in video clips as a way of masking their own deterioration. Not something I would ever have thought to catch, but they did it on the show, which was remarkable. No, I did pick up on that, Nathan, and I I thought that was funny because he did look more like the Palpatine we knew from actually Attack of the Clones rather than from Revenge of the Sith. So I think it's, again, one of those little details. Even though this is really, I think, designed as a a kid's show, they're not really dumbing it down or they're putting stuff in for the adult fan. And again, I'm, I'm thrilled to see it. And even on the back of the bar, if you look real closely, there's a clone trooper helmet behind the Athorian on the back of his bar. It's kind of like a decoration. It was the Attack of the Clones helmet. It wasn't a Revenge of the Sith one, too. Right. This would be a good point to do this whole Empire Day question. Because <sighs> there's been some question as to, wait a minute, how is this Empire Day? How does this fit with when the series is supposed to take place? Presumably, we just kind of have to assume that the first handful of episodes of this series took place sometime over what was hinted at of a series of weeks or months. Because the series started in five BBY, so to speak, five years before the Battle of Yavin, which would mean it's only been 14 years since Revenge of the Sith, or what would have been Empire Day. Now we find that Ezra, who was 14 and advertised as such, is turning 15, right? Because uh, was it? It's, he's been eight years alone and he was seven, or it was seven years alone and he was eight, so we got that 15 number playing in there. And we have the fact that it's the 15th anniversary of the founding of the Empire, which means we have now moved chronologically, which is a big deal when they're building a new canon. We've moved chronologically from five years before Yavin to four now, which gets us ever closer to A New Hope. Although that does make it interesting that all that speculation from the trailers about the whole uh, five-year plan, very old Soviet Union type phrasing there, a five-year plan for all these planets, the thought was, well, this is five years before Yavin. It must be leading up to a new hope. Apparently not, because if it's a five-year plan, unless it's old information, we're now looking at something that stretches about a year past Yavin, which begs the question of, where are they really going with all this? Is it possible they're going to take this not just up to a new hope, but have thoughts about possibly even pushing it further? Wait a second. In this episode or before they mentioned that Empire Day 
was 15 years ago. I missed that. I watched this episode three times. They talk about him being, he's turning 15, he was seven, and then there's the eight. They said his birthday is Empire Day. They didn't say his first birthday was Empire Day. Well, they said he was 15, he's born on Empire Day. Oh, so you're doing the math. Okay, see, I I, I thought for a second that the way you were talking that they actually dropped that is 15 years ago today, his 15th anniversary of Empire Day. Okay, I didn't get that. They say 15th Empire Day or something like that, don't they? They do? Yes, they they do. Uh, On the Imperial broadcast in the bar, they say it's been 15 years since our glorious emperor, yada, yada, yada. Okay. All right, so we learn that Ezra was born on the same day of the founding of the Empire. But one other thing that we learn while our heroes are in the bar with these three Imperial pilots is that the Empire is looking for a Rodian. And we don't know why, but... We then learn that, for some reason, Ezra knows who that Rodian is. Let me say stylistically as well that it's really cool, and we saw this back in, uh, it wasn't Fight or Flight, it was the episode right after Rise of the Old Masters, that kind of like they did every so often in the Clone Wars, but here they seem to do it consistently, anytime we're seeing like an electronic document of something in this universe, the document is never CG animated. It's always that cool 2D styled artwork. I love the juxtaposition of those two that they're playing with here. One thing we didn't talk about yet was during the Empire Day broadcast, besides having the cool (laughs) high school band version of the Imperial March, was the broadcast was interrupted by another rebel guy. It was Brent Spiner, I believe, you guys called out on another episode. I know, Nathan and Jonathan, you've read Tarkin, and I've read Tarkin, and some of our listeners may have read Tarkin, the new book that is the second book in the brand new continuity, which is supposedly being in line with this series as well. Everything's in one continuity now. And the MacGuffin of Tarkin is that there are rebel forces, or they're not calling it rebel forces, some outside forces who are breaking into holonet transmissions, and they have communication uh, equipment that is antique from the Clone Wars that they're trying to hunt down. Uh, target invader trying to hunt down to find out the source of of where these transmissions are coming from because they don't want this to become a problem militarily speaking or something like this and because i've read the book i picked up on this as a connection in this whole big arc thing and i thought this is the first time i've seen a connection between the books and the tv shows and did you guys think that at all or am i just making this up as i go you know brock i it did occur to me but i kind of I guess I didn't make as strong a connection to it because we had seen the first interruption of a Holonet feed, I think, back in, oh, was, I, I guess it was Rise of the Old Masters when, when it was the first time that we had seen this senator uh, break into a feed to give, Im- give his information. And that was before I read Tarkin. So I actually thought about that while I was reading Tarkin, but I, I'm not sure that I, I made as strong a connection here. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I wonder what other sort of things we're going to pick up on as time goes by. That's also a common tactic in any kind of you know guerrilla warfare type situation. If you can't face the enemy head on, in straight combat, you, know, you try to use their own communications against them, you try to hijack frequencies, you try to get your information out one way or the other. I mean, heck, we were flying over parts of the Middle East dropping pamphlets and food saying, you know, here's what to expect. You know, the Americans are here to help you. We're only after the bad guys kind of stuff. To have Gaul Travis 
showing up in a couple of episodes. It's nice to see Brent Spiner coming back. It would suggest that maybe he's going to have more to do in the future. But I guess I never also made that Tarkin connection. Because to me, it's it's that chronological connection. you got the one that's the novel that's five years after Revenge of the Sith here. yet one that's five years or now four years, apparently, uh, before A New Hope. That gap in between, for whatever reason, wasn't something that I bridged mentally. But you would think that this is something that we should see building. It shouldn't be something that's a one-shot deal in Tarkin. If the Rebels really are going to eventually become a force to be reckoned with, they need something like this type of technology. So it's good to see that that doesn't disappear at the end of the Tarkin storyline. After the break-in to the Holonet feed, the Imperial pilots leave, and our group kind of gets together and learns that the Empire is searching for something, and we know it's this Rodian, but that they've shut down all the ports and their Star Destroyers circling the planet. And I think I think it was Hera that said, well, it's nice that they're not chasing us for a change. And Kanan goes, well, they will after what we do to the Empire Day Parade. And Ezra informs them that they're going to have to do it without him, and he he takes off. And I was kind of shocked by that because I didn't know that – I guess I didn't know that he could just walk off and leave them for a little while. What about you guys? It's like he called in sick. I don't really feel like this today. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't buy that at all. I was like, you can't go. You're a part of this, dude. But yeah, nope. When did uh, Padawan start giving their masters orders as well? I guess he's just like um, any other kid. I think that was Anakin, actually. <laughs> and Ahsoka. Kane is holding me back. And if Kane is the last Padawan, or he's the last war Padawan, then I guess he's used to uh, talking back or whatever, or getting talked back to. I get fits Ezra, though. I mean, Ezra... He's been struggling throughout this series so far with being willing to trust, being willing to be part of this team. And, I mean, this is someone who's really not dealt with a lot of the darker parts of himself, his time alone. Now we're finding out about how, I mean, by the time this these episodes are over, it's not that he necessarily thinks his parents are definitely dead. He will ask Sibo, you know, are they dead? He says that the reason why he believes they're dead is essentially so that he could survive. He's got a lot of baggage to be hanging on to. So it makes sense that, particularly at a time like this, that he would be someone who'd be willing to say, you know, screw it and step away or whatever and kind of be alone for a while. And that he would eventually come back. He's part of this team, but he's the new one. He's sort of the outsider. He's working his way into it. And he's got stuff that he's dealing with. And it's interesting also with the whole juxtaposition between the episodes. You've got him walking away because he needs time alone. And Kanan's like, where are you going? By the end of the two episodes, once he's seen what Ezra's grief and, and anger and frustration have put him through, leaning him towards the dark side and whatnot, as we get to the end of the episode, Kanan is the one telling Hera he needs some time alone and allowing him that. This, in a lot of ways, hits more of those Ezra getting accepted and accepting his part in the whole set of beats that we've been seeing earlier in this season. I agree with that, Nathan, completely. Everything you just said makes a lot of sense to me. But on the other hand, they're planning this terrorist act, I guess you could call it, on this parade. They need him today. You just, of all the times to need some time alone, it is not the time. Now, of course, he didn't know Sibo was going to mess with his head at this point. None of that was known by him until this scene at the bar. But there's a job to do, and then you got to do the job. So you got to, you have to compartmentalize it. It's 
probably where I was seeing it. Now, of course, yes, it makes all the sense in the world when you've seen both episodes. But my first reaction and probably the team's was, whoa, 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 not right now. But did they really need him? I mean, really? You needed Kanan to stick the bomb underneath the the new awesome advanced tie. You needed Sabine to make her little miracles, so to speak, full of fireworks, and someone to throw them, which could have been Kanan, could have been Sabine launching them some other way. You really didn't even need Zeb there, and Hera's not there on site. She's flying the getaway vehicle that, except for Zeb, no one initially is able to get to. Ezra didn't seem to have much of a role in it. This seemed to be a much more compact type of operation than anything you actually would have needed Ezra for. I wonder if Ezra was even you know, brought in on the details of the plan up to that point. Or, you know, they could have just changed it once they found out that he wasn't showing up. That's neither here nor there. What did happen was that Ezra did show. And regardless if he had a role in the plan at that time, if they changed it or not, he saved Kanan's butt. And I like that. The Padawan coming in, saving the old master. Yeah, it was great. And I guess, as a coda to what I just said a second ago, he realized that he was needed to come here and be with his, be with the people he needed to be with now and did what he was supposed to do. Now, obviously, I agree with Parent, by the way. I think they just changed the plan. But we don't have that scene, and I'm sure they didn't write it that way, but blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that was a great moment for both characters, too. And I love seeing Kanan uh, put on a character. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, and this was another example of something shown in Act 1 that they bring back in Act 2. Not only does he save Kanan here, but he saves Kanan again. So all around, again, very smart writing. And it's the most life we've had out of Freddie Prince Jr.'s voiceover acting. I think oh. he's, doing a, he's doing a great job um, being a, a st- stoic. And I, I know Freddie Prince can do a little bit more. I've seen him do a lot of his movies. I actually have seen <laughs> more Freddie Prince movies than I, um, a four-year-old man should probably admit to. <laughs> but I know he can do more. And so far, we haven't seen him do a lot uh, different. And here we got a little bit of a glimpse of he can do things different. And I liked him in this scene. Yeah, I, I was really struck by his performance this time, too. Not so much on the first episode, but as we get to the end of the second, mm. when he's trying to calm Ezra down, when he's taking care of Ezra, getting him back to the ship to get them out of there. There was a lot more depth to that performance, not just than I would have expected from Freddie Prince Jr. in this series so far, but really than I feel like we've seen in a lot of the performances in the Star Wars animated stuff so far, the Clone Wars especially. And I wonder if part of that is because this guy is a film actor. A lot of the people doing voice work, say for Clone Wars, are predominantly voice actors in general. They really are kind of bombastic about it. You know, they kind of speak in the way that these characters, when animated, tend to move in over-exaggerated ways, because that's just the way that animation tends to work. And we get a much more understated human, as if he's performing on camera type of approach from Freddie Prince Jr. in this particular set of episodes. And I think, again, that bodes well for where the series is going if that type of performance is what he keeps bringing to the table when the emotions demand it. Moving on, it seems like we got a lot of old friends brought into this episode, though, didn't it? I mean, we got Makath Tua, who we, I guess we learned that she's kind of second to the Imperial Governor on Lothal. We get the Commandant, we get the Drill Sergeant, and Agent Callus is back too, as well as the Inquisitor. Is this, I have a question, is this the same TIE Fighter pilot that we meet in the episode, uh, fight or flight no i think he's dead 
okay. But, there's, been, there's been a few TIE fighter F, uh, pilots. I'm just getting it wrong this whole time. Didn't you ask that same question in a previous episode? He did. No. They all look alike. <laughs> they do all look alike. So My it's, goodness, man. Come uh, on. Although, did you notice... Did you notice that they gave this one a rank or a title and it wasn't like lieutenant or something? It was Baron. I have to say that's probably an obvious reference to the rank of Baron soon tier fell in the Legends continuity, especially if we're talking about an ace TIE fighter pilot. That was a slick little reference there. With the red stripe on his helmet. Hmm. Long live the 181st, I suppose. <laughs> so now I am glad I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> you were vindicated. <laughs> Poor Baron, he never gets a chance to fly the TIE Fighter because they blow it up. I do have to say, I like this new TIE Fighter, uh, the cool kind of curved design. The fact that it folds down to land, as we'll eventually see, that was a really cool design form. I mean, obviously, it's just one of those instances of, hey, he's the Inquisitor, let's give him a cool ship. Just like with Darth Maul, let's give him the Scimitar, the Sith Infiltrator, whatever they're going to call it now. But it's a really cool design. I'm wondering where the design continuity is, though, between this and Vader's tie in A New Hope, because that's four years later now. And here we've got what feels like a much more streamlined, cooler-looking version of it, and yet Vader's was supposed to be the tie advance, like the one out there, and yet here's this one, and all the official sources are calling this a tie advanced is that just a name for anything that's a prototype now well speaking as the uh the vehicle guy the tie advanced was always a prototype and i think that that's kind of what this one is too because i i mean we've seen ties down the down the line here and while their wings get bigger they they don't have that kind of curve I can see this, honestly, as just sort of that the precursor that they're trying out some new design elements to see what works and what doesn't. Because the other thing that struck me is that with the, the bendable wings there, I'm not sure how real sturdy in combat they would be, but maybe we'll get a chance to see that later on. Also, the TIE Advanced Darth Vader's has a hyperdrive built in, I believe. And this one clearly does not, because although he follows the group into space, he hops on the Star Destroyer before they go into light speed later on. And as far as I'm concerned, this is a perfect in-between uh, from a big wing TIE fighter, small wing TIE fighter that they're showing on Rebels to what we're going to see in Darth Vader's TIE Advanced in, in Episode 4. So I think this is, is, is a great in-between vehicle that they, you know, the Empire probably used for a few years and got rid of them. I have one more thing to say before we leave the parade on Lothal. Uh, did you guys notice in the crowd before the explosion, there was another Athorian? He was his back was to the screen, and besides seeing uh, Ugnots in the crowd too, which is cool, this Athorian was wearing the blue Kenner jumpsuit from the original Hammerhead figure from nineteen what nineteen seventy eight, I think it was. Did you guys catch that? Actually, I did. I thought that was a nice little nod, but I think that this. I mean, Rebels, you could tell that there's a lot of love for vintage Kenner in Rebels. I mean, jumping ahead a little bit to look at the troop transport, which we've talked about before. I mean, that's directly, well, the only place they could pull it from was the old toys because there was, it was never in anything else, even as far as EU that I know of. Not necessarily true. It did show up in its own little Imperial troop transport little toy thing and did show up in some guides and whatnot. Also, on Yavin 4, when they're going into the big Masasi temple, I always thought that little vehicle they rode on 
that was what the thing was based on. So I always thought that was it in the movie. But I know I'm not 100% right because of things on the side, blah, blah, blah. But and as a kid, I always justified the vehicle was that thing in, in A New Hope. It's like the mini-rig version. We're on a severe tangent here. Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> you know, since we're on a tangent, there's one thing that was missing out of this whole plan, you know, that they really could have used. When is Sabine going to get her jetpack? I mean, if she could get her jetpack, a lot of these missions would be going a lot smoother. But I digress. I'm sorry. I know you said that last time that, that Sabine needs a jetpack. I mean... As if the Mandalorian armor didn't attract enough attention. If she walked around with this big old jetpack, I really think she would stand out even more. There's Mandalorians around. That's their that's their attire. She can't have a jetpack. You see some of these people in the crowd. <laughs> I, and see, I don't think every Mandalorian gets a jetpack. And you know, <laughs> they're they're undercover. They're doing these operations. It's supposed to be Spectre, and the ship is the Ghost with the Phantom. Her call sign should be sore thumb, because that's how she sticks out in any situation in that armor. (laughs) So the group blows up the TIE fighter, and they start to go on the run when Callus and the Inquisitor both show up. And Kanan tells Zeb to take a shot at the Inquisitor when he was about to take a shot at Kalis. It's it's really too bad, because you kind of knew that he had no chance of taking out the Inquisitor, but he probably could have taken out Kalis. I had the same thought, and what I also thought was terrible was he missed <laughs> so poorly, and he hit the thing behind the, the Inquisitor, but I agreed completely. I'm like, good lord, you should shoot the Kalos right now! And not only that, but that's one of the few continuity flubs between these episodes that, that rankled me, which is that in the second episode, when they're coming up with the whole plan about how they have to go to the planet with the old clone base and the creatures and everything, Kanan says that you know, it's not as simple as just releasing it with the tracker on it. He sensed the Inquisitor back on Lothal. He didn't sense it. He freaking saw him and told Zeb to shoot him. It's not, well, I sensed the Inquisitor. Yeah, they all know the Inquisitor was there. You guys saw him. Well, no, I think that maybe he sensed the Inquisitor was in one of the fighters that was attacking the ghost. That's what I took that as. I agree. Not even remotely buying that. It sounds like he was he was announcing to them that oh we can't do it. The Inquisitor was there. No, he was saying the Inquisitor is following us right now. We can't go if we if if we stay on this ship. They're going to follow us because the Inquisitor is following us. That the Inquisitor has a force sense of them as much as the tracker that was on the Phantom, and the Inquisitor says as much. The, you know, he's on the Star Destroyer, and he says that he, he senses the, the Jedi in his Padawan. And again, this is, it goes back to, I think, Spark of Rebellion, when we saw that Kanan doesn't really have, he or he never really learned how to shield his Force presence. You know, because we've seen that Ezra in, the, in Spark of Rebellion is able to sense Kanan before Kanan is able to sense Ezra. So this continues that, that theme that Kanan is not trained very well. And we'll see that in the second episode. So the group splits up. Zeb goes off to meet up with Hera, and Sabine, Ezra, and Kanan end up in Ezra's childhood home, where they find Zebo, the Rodian. Okay, now, Zebo's crazy. Or not crazy. I don't know what the problem. He's out of his mind right now. You know, they have to help him. How is Zebo able to find 
and get into Ezra's house? That well, that was my question. And not kill himself going down the well of despair there. You know, I don't know. He was obviously a friend of the Bridgers and knew how to get in there. Maybe he had one of those severely oversized keys just like Ezra did. <laughs> it was a hideaway key in the rock next to the door. So it's kind of like uh, a zombie where the zombie kind of keeps uh, a little essence of your former self and you kind of go to the ball because that's where you've always gone to. He's not a zombie. He's wearing one of these cybernetic link units that we first saw in Empire Strikes Back with Lobot wearing. And I get the sense that he just overloaded. So his system keeps kind of breaking down because he can't cope with all the data that is kind of running back and forth. We don't actually get an explanation for it, but I assumed he had a moment of clarity, was able to figure it out, and then he was his mind got jumbled again. Because throughout the show, he is knocked out of it by actual stimuli, like Ezra and etc. But maybe perhaps something else knocked him out of it, was able to get his mind straight for long enough to get into the uh, house, and once he crawled down into that hole, then he lost it again. That's the only thing I can think of. You know, the implant itself seems to be on the fritz from time to time. Sometimes it turns off, sometimes it's on and beeping, sometimes it's on and not beeping. It doesn't seem like it's a, you know, a foolproof system. Uh, in terms of stimuli in the apartment or the home, the stimuli that had me sort of scratching my head, I mean, I was okay with, with Sibo. He seemed like he was within bounds of what we would expect for someone who's been ex experimented on or uh, has put himself through this process that was voluntary and seems to have sort of cracked up from the guilt and all the things that were done to his mind. To me, the question was, the voices that Ezra's hearing, are these memories? Are these force impressions of memories? It seems at times he's almost talking to the spirit of his father. In other cases, maybe he's just saying something conveniently appropriate to what the memory of the father is saying. No one else, of course, seems to be hearing it, but if it's through the force, who would know? And if that's the case, it begs the question of whether or not Ephraim and Mira Bridger were Force-sensitive, or if that's just something that's manifested itself in Ezra, one of those many things we don't have answers to. But that seemed like an element of this episode that was somewhat nebulous. It, it just felt like it was kind of unclear each time I watched it. I guess I took it more as Ezra kind of talking to himself and, and remembering uh, things or they're thinking that what he wanted his father to to say possibly but what i got left with ezra's house and if i was to have any type of criticism about these two episodes is that i did not get an impression one way or another about his house you know it, it should have been when they've got into his house it, it should have been i guess you know, the way that Filoni and crew take care to show us things and make the ghost seem livable as a livable space and have memories and, and, and people actually live there. I did not get this from Ezra's house at all. And like I said, if I was to have any criticism of this of this episode, it would be that. That you're saying that it wasn't full of cobwebs and dirt and mice and vermin? It was not only that, it just wasn't full of, there was no pictures on the wall, it didn't look like anybody lived there, uh, nothing. We didn't get to really see his bedroom, uh, you know, we kind of saw a, a workroom kind of thing. Uh, it just didn't seem, it didn't make an impact on me that I thought that when you would go home to Ezra's house, that it should have. Well, you're missing it. Sibo uh, cleaned it up when he got there. <laughs> <laughs> he had a Roomba. I out. mean... 
<laughs> Did anybody else uh, feel like that it was just a non-impact site? I mean, it was. It, it shouldn't give me anything like the Lars Homestead, but nothing. I mean, the bar gave me a better feeling than this house. You know? It almost felt like it was meant to be a non-entity because there hadn't been life there in so long. Because it had been, you know, eight years since Ezra's parents were taken away or whatever happened to them, and Ezra was on his own. It seemed like everything, down to the color schemes, were used to sort of give us the idea that here are the characters, they are vibrant and bright with all these colors. All these other areas, vibrant and bright. The inside of this home seemed purposely doused in very, very dark colors uh, and washed out shades of grays and blues and such. More so than necessarily the interior of a place without lights on would need to have. I'm thinking that was how they were trying to distance the, the idea of lived in versus abandoned in this sense but but yeah details like cobwebs and stuff like that you would think would have been part of the design and were conspicuously absent too but it could also be something as simple as and clear projection here that since they did take the family away they went back to the house and cleared everything away out of it so they can investigate it but again i'm helping the writing by concluding that it it, clearly they missed a step here by showing us either uh, an abandoned house or just a rundown one. And hey, maybe they just have really good pest control that's automatically built into these houses. All right, moving us along, Ezra encounters Sibo, and we get this angst coming off Ezra, and, and he's getting conflictual with even Sabine, which I find odd because he's, or has been, all about her, and she could say and do no wrong in his eyes. But we soon discover that Sabine is able to access the data that Sibo has. As Nathan said, there's a five-year plan that he has information on, and the group decides that they need to get him to the ghost and get him off the planet. So they steal one of these troop transports, and we really learn what a beating these things can take. Because as it's barreling down toward this blockade that they've set up, it's taken a couple of direct shots from the walker and then is able to knock over a walker and bowl another transport out of the way without a scratch on it. Two direct shots from the walker. You know, when you say it like that, they are, it is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, but still, I mean, it's, an, it's a troop transport. You would expect it to be somehow armored. You know, you got to figure that the Empire is going to assume its enemies are going to have decent weapons. That's that's always something I found odd when it comes to something like, for instance, Stormtrooper armor. Stormtrooper armor, you shoot it with enough blaster bolts, the Stormtrooper dies. Half the time in the films, you shoot it with one, the Stormtrooper dies. You would think that if the Empire can manage to have strong, handheld weapons, they would make it a point to make the Stormtrooper armor able to resist those handheld weapons. I would assume the same logic would apply to these vehicles, but for once, we're actually seeing it in practice making sense. You wouldn't want a troop transport that could take one shot coming in from a walker and explode. It needs to be heavily armored, and it actually appears to be. You know, Nathan, it's funny that you say that you would expect troop transports to be heavily armored. You're the history guy. Go, go look back at the APCs during the Vietnam War. No, not so much. Well, I'm thinking in terms now of, of the modern transports like in Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and just the general concept of why you would make a transport, not only armor, but that looks like this. It'd be like having the ATATs, the all-terrain 
armored transport or whatever it is, and have them be able to just zip up with a snow speeder and blast it in the side, and it's all done. You know, you expect heavy armor. At least that's that's the expectation I would think within the Star Wars universe. All evidence with stormtrooper deaths notwithstanding. Well, I always thought that. Well, ever since high school, I always thought that the rebels got some of those. Um, to borrow a phrase from you know the real world back in the early '90s, was the cop killer bullets. They loaded their blasters with the troop killer blasters, you know, because they the armor was so strong, so the rebels were able to get it, blah blah blah. But we're seeing that here now that the stormtroopers, um, you know, they can fall pretty quickly with one shot too. So that threw out the window. I was how was always justified in my head. Well, not always, but I justified in my head for quite a long time because of that. But don't forget the snow speeders also were not supposed to be that kind of vehicle, and they were used for purposes not supposed. I'm I'm geeking out here. Let me get back to the topic. Um, I I liked that the troop transport took direct hits. I like that they ran their blockade. I, too, have the same note. How in the earth are they surviving getting direct hits from the, the walker? But on the other hand, that whole scene with the troop transport, it was it, – it's the truck for uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's that wagon scene in Willow. It's that classic kind of action scene on a moving vehicle where people are on top and trying to get in. And it's, it was such a, a strong action beat. And what I loved about it so much was it came right after a fantastic plot and character beat in the previous scene. So we're giving us plot and then right into action, and this thing is nonstop barreling along. This is the first time that when I was watching this episode and I had a notebook in hand because I knew I was going to be on the show with you guys, I had to put my notebook down because I couldn't write fast enough. And I couldn't – I had to stop the show so I could make a note. It was going so fast and so great, and it was one thing after another, and it was just an incredibly great Awesome, well-played-out scene. So uh, all the nitpicks came on the third viewing, because the first two times, I'm sitting there enjoying the heck out of the scene. Oh, and even with the nitpicks, I'm enjoying the hell out of this scene. And, Brock, much like you, I totally got a Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe from this, and it was a welcome one. See, it's funny you guys are, are hearkening back to the Lucasisms for it. To me, the thing that stood out the most was I, I felt very much like we were watching video game sequences of the last few years when it came to this. Uh, uh, the fight on top, awesome. Uh, the moment where Kanan is able to grab uh, the one trooper and throw him into the other one, awesome. It, the whole scene is masterfully done in so many ways. What struck in my mind was the blast from the ghost taking out the pursuing troop transport and causing it to flip and just barely miss hitting them, which screams the train sequence from Uncharted 2. And the, the cool move that Kanan does right there at the end, you would expect, oh, everybody but Kanan's off of it. Now Callus is up there. Oh, they're going to have a brief little encounter, and then they're somehow going to have to get Kanan out of there. And instead, no. We had a cool, almost the Force Unleashed type of move where Kanan just blocks a couple and jumps and does one of those almost hovering type jumps to land on the boarding ramp and get the heck out of there. Every beat of this felt like it played out really, really well. If there's any one complaint or nitpick that I would have, it's that still Capital City, especially as we get to these outskirts, is very monochromatic. The the visuals have depth to the action, but not necessarily to the scenery. There's a lot of white and a lot of gray. You didn't think Qui-Gon Jinn at the end of uh, the first battle with Darth Maul and Tatooine when he jumped onto the landing platform? No, because when I think that, I think of him 
jumping up onto it and there's just not a lot of springiness to his legs when he lands, but not jumping and almost hovering for a second before landing. That felt very much more like something we'd see in a like a video game, like say The Force Unleashed, you jump into the air and start swinging your lightsaber, it slows your fall and you're almost hovering for a moment before you start coming back down to Earth. Or Lothal, in this case. A distinction without a difference, gentlemen. <laughs> Whoa, that was very astute. <laughs> I, I don't know. I really liked how you know they make their escape and then they move up into the space outside Lothal's atmosphere and they are immediately picked up by the Inquisitor and two other ties. And the Inquisitor actually starts doing damage. They he takes out Chopper or at least damages him by, you know, hitting the rear, the, you know, hitting the Phantom. From a tactical standpoint, though, don't you love the irony, I guess it's irony, of what the, uh, the Inquisitor is saying, right? Keep firing! Their shield energy won't hold out for long, or something along that. It won't hold out indefinitely, and then you see him firing, and the first handful of shots come nowhere near hitting the ghost. Someone should be raising their hand saying, maybe you should reserve your shots, because your blaster power can't hold out indefinitely. Well, you know, for me... It, when Chopper went down, obviously it's real reminiscent of when R2-D2 takes some hits. You know, every time he gets in a, a X-Wing with Luke Skywalker, he's taking hits. So as as not a fan of the droid per S comedy specials, you know, the com- droid comedy hour that they try to pull, uh, this made me a little more endearing to, to Chopper because, uh, you know, I didn't like it when R2 gets beat up. And now I'm not liking it when Chopper gets beat up e- either. The other thing about this sequence is I always wondered in Star Wars in a lot of in a lot of situations you'll you'll get the get the sense that okay you've got this ship that that's being chased and it's being chased by maybe two or or three you know starfighters in this case tie fighters but you know that the empire has so many more that they could scramble why aren't they scrambling them and they do that uh, I think it's like four more or five more ties join the fight. Plus, they're heading straight into two Star Destroyers. Yeah, it was awesome when those other TIE Fighters came in the side of it. It was, it was like a video game in that point to me. All those Star Wars video games when the TIE Fighters just keep on coming. Uh, but here, also, the, the angle they had on it. You know, it was really great right out of the movies with the, uh, with the back of the TIE Fighters coming they're coming from the camera, right? From away from the camera as opposed to towards the camera. I thought that was really clever and how they all banked. Uh, that was a beautiful shot, well well rendered shot as well. So the the whole sequence was great. So this is the point where the first episode ends, and the second episode picks right up. And we talked about this earlier, but I love how this is so seamless. And you know, when you watch them together, it, it it's 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 really beautiful. And I, I'm I'm actually hoping I would really like to see a version where there is no break or one where they don't add in the that completely screws up the seamless experience. Okay, you know, wait, a sec- wait a second, wait a second. I've listened to all those episodes of this of this podcast before coming on here, and I've heard you complain about the <laughs> before, and I gotta tell you, it doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I love it. You know why I love it? It brings back Star Wars. That's a Star Wars uh, riff. That's Star Wars. Yes, it's, 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 it's Star awesome. Wars, but it's incredibly 
abrupt. There's barely even any audio fade in or fade out on it. It's just really <laughs> abrupt. It's a ringtone. It's on you're on, you're on you're on the train. All of a sudden you hear dun, 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 dun. oh, it's my mom. You know what I'm saying? Like it's one of those things. <laughs> I don't need to be reminded that I'm watching Star Wars when I'm it's... watching Star Wars, dude. Guess what? I'm watching Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm with you, bro. It doesn't bother me at all. But one thing that when I was watching this episode and was ending is I didn't know it was going to be a two-parter. You know, I went into watching this episode as it being kind of self-contained. So when it said to be continued and they were in a space fight with the Inquisitor, I could not wait until the next episode came. You know, Barrett, I'm right there with you. I Even though I knew it was going to be a two-parter, I was so just, I guess, wound up into the into the experience the first time I watched it, I didn't wasn't even paying attention to the clock. And when it went to be continued, I was like, no! But it is, I think, again, I mentioned this before, it's kind of a notable thing that with this pair of episodes, because they're so seamlessly tied together, it does say to be continued. I mean, in a sense, I guess that's the approach they're trying to take with this uh, by Felonian crew. When he talks about there not really being arcs, per se, that that's what we're getting, that everything in a sense is one enormous arc. It's a serialized soap opera-esque story, and it's only these that are essentially one episode that felt like it had to be split for time that it actually get a to-be-continued tag. Also, on that same idea, Nathan, typically when you have those kind of serialized drama things, they drop a lot of exposition and conversation that people wouldn't normally do, and we are not encountering that so much yet in these five or six episodes so far. If they're going to keep doing that, they're going to drop. They're going to have to do some data drops in there somehow, or find a really clever way to do it without making it seem so obvious. But thankfully, we haven't had that yet. So the one thing about this space battle, which I'm absolutely loving, and as as we talked about, the space battle bridges over both uh, episodes. There, it picks up right where it left off. Uh, what one got thing got me was the Inquisitor took a break from trying to pummel the back of the ghost and put the tracker on there. And we have a long, long camera shot to make sure we all know what's going on about this little tracker. And that's the one thing that bothered me, because what made the Inquisitor think he's not going to finish them off right now? But he's he's the intellectual, though. They've played up this idea. Uh, Filoni's played it up as one of the differences between him and, say, Vader or Palpatine is he's a, a more intellectual, more studied individual. Certainly nothing like the blunt instrument that Darth Maul was supposed to be. That's why he's able to speak with such a highfalutin tone when talking to Ezra, when talking to Kanan about how their skills aren't up to par, etc., etc., it made perfect sense to me that this is someone who would calculate the different possibilities and make sure there was a tracking device in case they got away. If this was Maul, totally unbelievable. But for the Inquisitor, it seemed perfectly in keeping with his character. They had no indication they were going to get away at this point. They're actually, they're, didn't they have a line that their shields, one more shot in the back and they're gone or something like that, or, or very soon after... Uh, this part, it, it seems to me that he had no indication there he even had a chance of getting away. It was the only point I was trying to make. You're right on that about this character. You're absolutely right. I also love how you think he's he's highfalutin. He's kind of kind of he's a southern gentleman for a second there. I thought that was really funny. Anyway, um, I didn't get the impression at all that he was thinking they're getting away. Is what I was trying to say. No, I I'm gonna have to go with Nathan on this one, Brock, because I do think that he you know he's already made the comment that that's you know, an interesting ship or something to that effect that it, you know, it's more than it appears. So I could just see him taking that precaution. Sure, he'd rather take them out now, but 
just in case he's wrong, I, I kind of see him as being self-aware enough to know that he's not infallible. Yeah, and you guys are right. You guys are right. I'm just saying to me, I, it called out to me, but you guys are making perfect points on this. Especially on the whole idea of him not being infallible, also think about the fact that he is also able to sense Ezra and Kanan in the Force and doesn't rely just on that. He winds up having to eventually, or at least in part, when they come out of hyperspace and they need to know to change their course and everything. But to a degree here, he's essentially using technology just in case his Force abilities don't wind up helping. And we've got a new way for this new canon, essentially, to deal with the issue of, well, how do you track somebody when they're in hyperspace? They've laid out the ground rules that, just like in the Legends continuity, you can't generally track through hyperspace, just like the whole thing with the Millennium Falcon and A New Hope. You know, they're not tracking us through hyperspace, but you find, oh, well, there's a tracking device on it. And the thought I always had was, oh, well, they got a tracking device aboard, so when they come out of hyperspace, that's how they know that's where the Rebels are, because it somehow pings and tells them they're at Yavin 4. Here we've got this introduction of the idea that certain technology will actually allow you to track something through hyperspace if you're not actually traveling somehow parallel or with them actually in hyperspace from the same entry or exit point. I thought that was an interesting new wrinkle to add to the, the story group canon version of Star Wars technology. Okay, well, here's where my EU knowledge is actually going to come in handy. This isn't the first time they've used that. If you think back to the original Star Wars radio dramas, they make a point of saying that there's a tracker on the Millennium Falcon that it's giving a signal, and Tarkin gives the order to follow it, indicating that even though they don't know where they're going, they know what direction they're going in. So, while I see what you're saying, Nathan, I don't think this is the first uh, occurrence. I'll give you that one, although usually I just assume that to be the same thing as pretty much any other time in Legends that we saw it, where it's more like you get a vector of where you're going, you plot out where they're likely to go to, what hyperspace routes are along that path, and you kind of go with that and wait for the next blip coming out the next time they drop out of hyperspace or tag a beacon or whatever. But again, that's all legend stuff. We don't really have that in most respects within this new canon. So they're setting up these new, I guess, narrative structures that we're going to have to see them use in the future. I mean, half the time, you know, when Ezra walked up to that house, I was kind of thinking it'd be Ezra's house. But part of me wondered, is that one of the places he hit out with Boss from Ezra's Gamble? Because... They are making that effort, it seems, and this is a new rule, or a, a new wrinkle, at least. Now all they have to do is retrofit that tracker and make it into a bomb, because it seems to be very accurate. And if you could just shoot one of those things to attach to a ship, make it into a bomb. <laughs> Point for Barrent. <laughs> the crew makes it into hyperspace after Tsebo plugs himself into the hyperdrive or he directly talks to the ship to give it hyperspace coordinates? Well, that's interesting. It's cybernetics, and R2-D2 could do it. Okay, now we're talking about things that we've never seen before. So as they're going through hyperspace, Zebo announces that, you know, Kanan says we, they can't track us. Zebo announces there is a way to track us, and Chopper scans the ship and finds that they are being tracked and that the tracker is actually attached to the top of the ghost. Now, the plan is for Kanan and Ezra to go ahead and detach in hyperspace. Now, when this scene went down, uh, we've never, now this is something we've never seen before, right? No, it's not something that we've ever seen before. And 
I just have to say it's really lucky that that tracker hit the Phantom and not the Ghost itself. Well, we have seen, again, going into the, the Legends continuum, there's been instances of something being jettisoned in hyperspace or the question of what happens if your engine fails in hyperspace if you don't have an active hyperdrive going. And there, there seems to always have been two interpretations that the writers used without really a lot of continuity, so to speak, between them, where some authors would look at it as, well, this just means you'd be somehow stranded in hyperspace forever with no way to get back out without a hyperdrive, I think with the whole idea of it kind of being another dimension and such. But then you also had the, the thought process that goes into something like this, which is, well, if it's detached without the hyperdrive to keep it going, it's going to fall out, just like if your hyperdrive fails while you're flying, which seems to be a more logical answer to it, given the concept of hyperdrives failing and, you know, the Millennium Falcon coming, you know, right back out of hyperspace and that sort of thing, for instance. So in story group canon, not so much, but I mean, we have seen the idea of if there's not an active hyperdrive, you can come out, but to separate in hyperdrive? No, no. I'd like to see the Enterprise try to pull that saucer separation kind of stuff, but something tells me some Trekker out there is going to say, yes, they did in episode number... Yeah, there's geekies we are. Those in grass houses should not throw stones. I think that what I liked the most about this whole thing was when they separated and he tumbled out and all the colors going over Kanan's face and how they, you know, how it was a really risky, could have destroyed the ship kind of maneuver. And they showed us how dangerous what they were really were doing because they could have easily just, you know, flown right out of hyperspace. You know what I mean? So that was really kind of a cool touch they did that they really showed us that it was, uh, yeah, don't try this at home, kids. They've gone the plaid. Before we jump over here, though, we kind of missed a few good character beats with Ezra's arc in this episode because he was having a little bit of an issue back on the ghost with Zebo saying how he couldn't forgive Zebo. And he had a remember I said earlier in the first episode that he had to learn how to compartmentalize what needed to be going on versus his emotions, because when he was having. It's not a tantrum, but he's having an emotional episode uh, with the whole thing with Zebo about my parents, my parents. Uh, then he was called up to the to the cockpit. That's when Zebo follows him to fix the hyperdrive. He he stops. He does his duty helping Hera in the cockpit. All of that stuff with Ezra is good quality character work that I wanted to mention because not only does it come back later on in the episode and is because of what happened already, but again, this is one of the reasons I love this episode so much is because Ezra is actually getting some meat on these bones. Think about this. This is the same kid who is okay going undercover two episodes ago with the, you know, with the whole cadet thing. So it's a whole different character, but this one makes more sense. It means the same character. You know what I'm saying? This one has life to him. It has, has, has meaning. It has depth. And, and those scenes I thought played very well. And he finally gets some new depth and development in his interactions with Sabine. Although there will be plenty who say, Oh gosh, I can't believe they're doing this. You know, maybe, maybe there's like an age of consent in the galaxy far, far away. Now that he's 15, he's okay for Sabine. But it seems as though it's in seeing his reaction, seeing how he lost his family, which is similar to an extent of what we assume was going on with Sabine. We haven't got her entire backstory yet, but it makes him more sympathetic of a character for her. She becomes the one advocating for Sibo. You know, look, he gathered this information specifically, possibly to make up for what he did. This was a voluntary thing. She's the one pushing, you know, did you hear what he said? He knows what happened to your parents. And by the end of the episode, she's the one taking that little uh, video chip or photo message chip from the house and tweaking it so that there's that one image they can still see, you know, and puts up, you know, happy birthday, Ezra Bridger. And she actually has a few moments of 
you know, smiling at him, not calling him just kid and dismissing him all the time. I'd like to think that's to make things nicer between them, more cordial, more family-like, less of him, you know, the whole, hey, did you miss me? So that Zeb could say, you know, uh, not hardly or whatever it was that he said, and not something leading to them having some type of relationship of some kind. But if they were building towards that, they just came up with a relatively natural way of thinning the ice between the two of them, which I appreciated. It was not nearly as heavy-handed as I expected it to be if they were going to do that. How old is Sabine? He is now 15. There's a one-year age difference now. Again, anyone who has a daughter, a 16-year-old daughter, they're into 22-year-olds. They're not into 15-year-olds. Okay, it it's it will never happen. I think she's not trying to uh, open the door for him. I think she just cares about him, just like she cares about everybody else who's on the ship. And I did not get that. And I guess I'm kind of biased. I want to be on one side of the the argument, but I did not get the I did not get that she was trying to open the door for some sort of relationship. That she just cares about the kid because um you know she needs him. He needs her. He needs them right now. I also got the fact that this is the first time he hasn't actually made some kind of stupid comment kind of thing. You know, he's actually being a person uh, who's not trying to play off something to get, you know, fancy and uh, <laughs> fancy. How old am I? Uh, Sabine, I took to be 22, you know, not 16. If she's 16, she's very self-aware for 16. And I think it would play better if she was 22. But that's neither here or there. Now, speaking of Sabine, uh, the plan that Kanan comes up with is to visit the world that she and Hera nearly died on last episode. And this was another sort of payoff that I didn't expect. They're going back to that clone base to deal to, I guess, use the uh, little nasties that, that were ripped off from Pitch Black. What we saw on Out of Darkness with Sabine and Hera is that these little guys are deadly. You know, they tear up clone ships you know they had to they had to move because of these guys so for kanan to have that as part of the plan and bigger yet for filoni and crew to incorporate that is just brilliant it's just brilliant the cynic in me if this was a live action movie or a live action television program would be well they already have the set and so we need to solve a problem so we already have it here uh, they don't have to. So and in a video game world, when you play video games, you know, they sometimes they have you backtrack through levels. You have to go back again. The Force Unleashed did that also. You have to go back to a level you already went to because they already have the thing already built. That's the cynical way to look at it, right? The cynical way. But I love that they went back to this place because they have the knowledge now. Not only does it we have links between the characters, we have a link. They're learning from what happened previously they're actually utilizing knowledge they have acquired to their benefit it makes a lot of sense so while it certainly does can be well it certainly can be written off as oh come on here i think it's a stroke of genius did anybody think that they were going on a death mission because we've seen the inquisitor kick kanan's butt a lot and uh, did anybody think they were going on a death mission no i never got that impression i knew everybody was coming out of this Except the stormtroopers, unfortunately, for them. I think it was an interesting kind of link to what they, you know, what they started this whole duology with. That Ezra, to further his training, needs to, to let go and, and almost open himself to the Force. And we learn that Ezra has a lot of fear built up in him. And 
as a result, maybe that's one of the reasons he hasn't been able to, I guess, use the Force the way that Kanan necessarily has been trying to teach him to do, and super jumps notwithstanding. It's interesting that his fear isn't the way that fear has tended to work within Star Wars. Uh, in particular, in Lucas's version of Star Wars events, he tended to focus on this idea that fear was born out of attachment, that it was fear of losing something. He, he goes on and on in some of his interviews, like the Bill Moyer stuff, about how essentially the dark side is inherently selfish, and once it takes something, it's afraid to lose it. It's essentially what Palpatine says about power in Revenge of the Sith. Uh, everything that Anakin went through, as screwed up as the psychology was, was about fear of losing someone, Padme, uh, and, and so forth. And here we have something that's driven by fear, but it's not fear of losing something, it's not fear of not being accepted, as the case was maybe with young Anakin, uh, when you get the whole fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, etc., etc. Apparently hate leads to lollipops, we learned in Star Wars Tales. Um, here we have a fear based on the truth, fear of knowledge. And I like that twist, where it's not fear, per se, of some kind of, of oppression or some sort of failing in oneself, per se. It's fear of something that generally we think of as a good thing. But because of his fear of it and possible unwillingness to accept what it is that he learns, it sort of gets corrupted and becomes a cancer within him and becomes the fear he has to let go of, which he finally does in this, that great moment where he essentially he says it to himself, says it in his mind or whatever, but apparently must echo it out into the Force, very much like the Anakin, no, of Attack of the Clones, because Sibo even is able to hear it and have his own cathartic moment along with it. I thought that was an extremely, extremely powerful moment and a very interesting way to play on the idea of fear in a way that we haven't really delved into too much with Star Wars. Fear of the truth. I mean, Basically, it's Colonel Jessup and Jaffe and a few good men. You can't handle the truth. That's what he's afraid of, but now he seems more willing to accept it, though he still doesn't learn it by the end of the episode, unfortunately. Or fortunately, if you like ongoing storylines. Nathan, you make a phenomenal point about the fear, and um, it was just something that was I, I thought it was an epiphany for not just the episode, not just for the characters, um, uh, but for the storytelling here, because you're absolutely 100% correct, and it was just wonderful to see that. The moment with Sibo was fantastic. The only problem with that, of course, is they're light years away from each other. <laughs> he's in hyperspace, and he's someplace else, but it just the moment was so great that who cares? I think the, the whole fear um, and letting go, He I thought he did let it go, Nathan, but he's not strong enough to continue to let it go. He's just a Padawan. He's just learning how to do it, uh, but I, I feel that I'm not sure 100% that the fear that he overcomes here is the same fear he has later in the episode that caused him to go over the dark side. You see what I'm saying? A different kind of fear. Yeah, it's like he's afraid of knowing the truth, and he forgives Sibo because he's realizing that he's taking it out on the wrong person, I guess, is, is what he's doing. So he lets go of part of it. But right, it'd be the but same thing as Anakin you know, being willing to look for ways to save Padme as opposed to just freaking out about his dreams. It's still not fully letting go, so he's still got that seed of dark side in him. What I meant was, later on, he's he's afraid of Kanan getting killed, which is what drives him to the dark side. But here, he lets go of the fear of the truth. He has two different fears here, is what I was trying to say. Well, speaking as the psychologist of the group, Ezra was 
essentially abandoned at age seven. What, what we have here is an individual that, for a lot of different reasons, has grown up afraid. He's done a lot of things to try to compensate. He's done a lot of things to try to, uh, to try to deal with that fear and overcome that fear. But it's still a very core, a very foundational piece of his personality, uh, uh, of, his, of his psyche. And you can let go of little pieces of it, but the, but the real issues are still there. I mean, in some ways, Ezra has, you know, post-traumatic stress and it's impacting everything in his life. So, he'll put up these fronts, he'll give you this attitude, but on the inside, when you chip through it, he is still terrified. He's still afraid and he always will be afraid. And in my opinion, that's how the dark side's going to make its way in. It's interesting you mention that because the one moment where he doesn't appear to have fear or anxiety when they're on their way down is when Hera takes that motherly approach and says, you know, take care of Kanan, make sure Kanan's okay, or whatever it is that she says. He says, you know, someone has to. It's like he needs that empowerment in order to get past the fear because it plays into being able to put up that stronger facade. I think you're absolutely onto something. It's a lot of the same psychology we see with Anakin, albeit playing out in a different way. Now, when Ezra lets go, and we've already coined it, he lets go, this was the start of the episode for me where I started getting chills. When he's able to let go and get control of the Force and able to get into those creatures' minds, and by the way, the creatures all look really cool. I didn't notice before that they were all different sizes and different colors, but I noticed that now when they're kind of sitting down. But he has that moment where he has his hand stretched out, and what a great pose and, and a great angle. And he is calm and he is full control of the force. And you have that that it's giving me chills now, just talking about it. And then you have Kanan where he looks at Ezra, and this is the first time that we see Kanan's teachings are that he's actually accomplished something he's tried to teach Ezra. And Kanan has this look on his face like he is so proud. And if you have a kid, when you try to, it's very challenging to teach your children anything, you know, that, that, that's, that's new to them, uh, sometimes. And when you, you have your child, you can't able to teach your child something or your Padawan and they accomplish something that you've taught them. You have that pride in yourself and you could see that on Kanan's face. And this, this is the first time I got chills. I liked Kanan's face as well as this. I was going to get the same comment, but a whole different way. That, uh, again, we talked about earlier how the facial expressions in this episodes and this and that. Here's another great example of the character design and how it really worked out. His eyes widened the whole thing. His mouth, I thought, almost like a slack jaw kind of thing. It was really a, a really great moment for not only Ezra, but for the animation on Kanan. And very subtle interactions for them with the creatures. He's holding the hand out to stop them. There's nothing big and elaborate about it. No big elaborate movements from the creatures. In fact, that would kind of defeat the purpose if they weren't just sitting still there. And once the Imperials do arrive and they send them out, there's nothing grandiose about it. They're simply sitting there, put the arms forward to indicate the direction of the Imperials, and the creatures go for it. The, it's an odd thing to be able to juxtapose the idea of impending violence with serenity. But this seems to do it in a way very reminiscent of Qui-Gon being able to meditate mm -hmm. while inside the, the force fields waiting to battle Maul in a way that, again, we don't see a lot, but which fits perfectly with the themes that we get out of the films. And I really enjoy this 
I guess, battle between the stormtroopers and the, the beasties. I, I thought it was, was handled really nicely. But, you know, in the midst of that, you have another conflict between the Inquisitor and Kanan. And Kanan seems to hold his own a little bit better this time, or at least for a little bit longer. He doesn't seem to be as outclassed as quickly. But I love, I love the Inquisitor's attitude toward things, even when Kanan asks him how things are going so far and he just snipes right back at him. Again, I think the Inquisitor is really shaping up to be an, an excellent villain for this series. When the Inquisitor and the Stormtroopers came down, I purposely looked to see how much time we had left in the episode. There was seven minutes and 55 seconds, so close to eight minutes left. And I remember thinking, we have eight minutes left, and I'm watching it on Disney XD, so there's no commercials in between. So it's a solid eight minutes. And I'm like, what is going to happen in these like seven, eight minutes that we're going to see this battle? And I was really excited. How awesome was it that this plan worked so great that they had the, uh, the creatures jump out at the stormtroopers? And then when it comes time when the Inquisitor starts walking through and they send the creature towards the Inquisitor, he just swats it down with that lightsaber like nothing happened, like a fly swatter with a fly. It was awesome. And it was a great way to transition to the next part of this whole thing that, oh, what a silly little parlor trick. Now let's get down to business. It was just a great moment of menace for the Inquisitor. He immediately starts clowning. This is, this is your plan to send these creatures to do your dirty work, to do your work for you. Pathetic. You know, it's awesome. As a, the entire choreography or whatever you want to call it, the, the layout of this entire fight sequence from the time the Imperials arrive all the way up to the end and the escape, just really well done beats to the entire thing. Uh, the, the stormtroopers briefly feel like they could be an actual threat, and then the creatures, the Fearnox, become the threat, and you feel it more so than we would with most of the creatures, like the Gundarks they were throwing at us back in Clone Wars. It just never really felt like as much of a threat to the individual characters, maybe because we're dealing with stormtroopers here that we know are essentially cannon fodder. The fact that the Inquisitor gets his arrogant moments, he grabs the one fear knock out of the air, he slices another one out of the air. Eventually, when the time comes where Kanan is down and Ezra grabs the lightsaber, he just snatches that thing like it's nothing. The entire sequence there, down to the point where Kanan pulls out his Luke in Return of the Jedi-styled blaster and tries to fire in the middle of the scene and winds up getting it snatched away. Every beat played out really, really well and just, and it felt like it was very, very fluid. It seemed very seamless throughout. There's only two quibbles that I would have with the way the entire sequence played out. One being that when the Inquisitor has both lightsabers, his spinning and Kanan's, it's very convenient that that's, that, that happens to be the slap that the big creature's able to do to cause the lightsaber to fall down so Kanan can retrieve it. We know he needs it later, but very, very convenient. And the fact that it seemed like the Inquisitor doesn't know what he wants. He goes from, I want them alive, to, you're all gonna die here, to, well, I'll teach you things your master never could, which means I'm going to leave you alive. He's very back and forth and back and forth, at least about his messaging, even though it does seem to fit the, the Darksider mentality that we get within Star Wars. But otherwise, probably the most outstanding, exciting sequence we've gotten in this series up to this point. I, I think that, to your point where the Inquisitor seems like he's going back and forth, I didn't really get that at all. I got that he did want them alive, at least he wants the Padawan alive. Uh, that seems to fit with the modern Sith of 
they all really want someone they can train to take over their master. And he's already made Ezra this offer in the old masters. What I find interesting was that, well, I think that he was using that you're all your friends are going to die and stuff like that, because that's what they do in order for Ezra to access the dark side. When, when he feels that Ezra is starting to get mad I love it when he says, oh, yes. <laughs> you, you, I mean, he, they love it. There's something about Sith Lords, man, and, and young Padawans touching the dark side. They love it. But he was waiting for that. He was using those words so Ezra could use the dark side and maybe choose him. And I do not think the Inquisitor, in fact, you can see the face on the Inquisitor, that he did not expect Ezra to be so powerful or to be able to use the dark side against him. Which was really cool. With the Inquisitor, when he was taunting Ezra, I couldn't stop looking at his pointy teeth. His pointy teeth were bothering me. It made him look like a cartoon character, which I know we're watching a cartoon. But it just really looked like fake teeth, and it just really bothered me. But beyond that, I loved everything else he was saying. (laughs) They need to yell yell him up a little bit. You know, They need to Darth Maul his teeth up a little bit. They're kind of too sharp and white. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's the species, isn't it? That's the, uh, what is it, the the Powans? Yeah, but even in episode three, I don't think the Powans had those shiny white teeth. I think those are kind of jacked, too. I I just remember them being sharp. Now, when Ezra does use the dark side, okay, which is another scene that my jaw dropped. I mean, when the Inquisitor's coming after him and... Ezra picks up the lightsaber to defend Kanan, which, I mean, that was my fa- one of my favorite parts in this episode. The Padawan grabbing the lightsaber to defend the Master. I mean, that is Star Wars if you, if you ever hear of Star Wars. And when, he, when the Inquisitor pushes Ezra, and he's about to go off the cliff, and he starts talking his, his jazz, and then Ezra taps into the dark side. I did not see that coming. I had no idea what was going to happen you know, there's rumors going around. We talked about it. Maybe that the Rebels isn't going to be around as long as we think it's going to be around. And what is going to happen? And I did not. I had for the first time suspense. I did not know the, how they were going to get out of this. And then what do they do? He taps into the dark side. Now, am I the only person who had a nergasm moment at that time tapping into the dark side? See, I've been expecting this. I've always felt that Ezra could very easily be pushed to the dark side. And I think it was you, Barrett, a few episodes ago who said that you know, Ezra could never be the one that gets pushed to the dark side. He's too pure. Well, he's not. And it's not – I don't even think it's about being pure or not pure. I think Ezra is is damaged, both he and Kanan. But Ezra, you know, he's – well, I mean, we know he's 15. He's just learning to use the Force. He doesn't have the the control that that he should. He's he's ripe for falling. Yes, yes, and they kind of try to clean it up afterwards, where he doesn't remember. Kind of what Filoni and crew did to when we had those episodes where Anakin was seeing the future of himself in the Darth Vader mask, and then he doesn't remember. I think that was on with the the mother, or excuse me, the father, the brother, and the sister episodes but yeah they kind of try to clean it up where he doesn't remember the dark side he just feels cold and that was one of 
you had mentioned, uh, Nathan, how Freddie Prince Jr.'s at voice acting kind of took it to the next level when Kanan picks up Ezra and Ezra says, I feel cold. And Kanan says, I know it's OK. I, I got chills again because that makes me think that Kanan has touched the dark side. He knows how it feels to be cold. And it, it, it just was amazing. It, it was just uh, amazing scene for and, 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 you know, I know that the EU is not canon anymore, but there back in the in in the EU books, Luke Skywalker talks about, you know, he uses force lightning. He touches into the dark side all the time and he doesn't believe that there is a darker light side. There is only the force and kind of like what you use it for. And this is kind of reminiscent of that, that he was able to use the dark, the, the dark side, not fully be entrapped by it. And I noticed that Kanan's eyes did not turn dark side uh, yellow and he was able to to get out of it. So there's many, many things here in this scene that makes it a, just a great scene. I think you mean Ezra's eyes, right? Ezra's, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I read A New Dawn. I know Nathan did. I know Jonathan did. And, and you see a different side of Kanan completely before you see who he is here. I don't remember if they talked about him going to the actual dark side, but he certainly pushed away all his Jedi teachings for a while, you know, and tried to hide who he was and things like that. So I don't know if they actually told us that he actually touched the dark side, but I think he knows what it is. I, what I liked about um, Ezra going to the dark side here for that moment was uh, what Jonathan said was that he saw this coming. And when it actually happened, I was thinking to myself, oh, good God, how did I not see this coming? <laughs> I got mad at myself because all oh, the signs are there. And uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of kicked myself. I, I just guess I was so invested in the episode. I just didn't see it coming. And uh, I should have because uh, he's he's absolutely right. And it's it's kind of fun when it happened and the, and the big mama comes up. It, it was just awesome because you see the inquisitor not expecting it you see kanan not knowing what's going on you see ezra just 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 collapse the whole thing was just so beautifully done but man oh man should we everyone watching this show should have seen this coming and i i bet you i'm not the only person who didn't i'm gonna have to go with with barrent and to a degree brock here um it was a nerdgasm moment because i saw the idea that ezra could lean toward the dark side coming and some of the stuff we've seen earlier with the character. But in this particular episode, as much as they built up the anger within him, they seem so much to deflate it to give him a chance to control the fear knocks. That I was thinking this wouldn't be the episode where that would happen. That we'd get some kind of cliffhanger or something, maybe because they're going into a brief hiatus or whatever for the holidays and all. And maybe we'd get something where it's like that moment, maybe the moment that we saw in the trailer with the Inquisitor walking forward, spinning the blade and scratching him on the ground and everything, maybe... That's going to be the next to be continued, and we get a three-parter or something instead of two. After they deflated his dark side juju for the moment, I never expected that would be coming in this episode mere moments later. And the fact that it's such a huge, grandiose type of thing. He takes the one thing he's learned how to do well, and is able to essentially do what in, you know, in other genres would be summoning a demon, so to speak, to bring it up to be able to attack and to see the physical consequences of it. And then immediately afterward, Kanan dealing with it as a father or a bigger brother would, not as a, uh-oh, this kid's damaged goods, what am I supposed to do? But to take up Ezra, use it as a teaching moment, or a teachable moment, they call it in the profession and all, to bring him in and say, you know, 
let's talk about this idea. You could open yourself up to the dark side. The fact that he tells Hera, even though he allows Ezra a chance to be alone, tells Hera, you know, we need to talk. I think what the, the key core thing here that really is something that the kids should take away from it. And this is coming from the perspective, understand, of, of I guess a lot of us in our generation, a lot of our sense of right and wrong came from Star Wars. I know, especially for me, right and wrong was Star Wars. It was light side, dark side. There's the honorable, the good, the bad. You do what is the light side thing. You don't do the dark side thing. Even before I had any kind of religious upbringing at all that stuck with me, that stuck with me. And here you've got Ezra saying, once they're out of there, explaining his actions about how I was doing it to save you. I was doing it to save us. That his intentions were good. His motivations what drove him to that point and caused him to call upon the dark side was bad. That there is such a thing as a dark side and motivation is only part of the process, right? You can do horrible things and give yourself justifications for it. That's what Anakin did. But no, you know, there is some measure of control he has to have. To me, it was an absolute nerdgasm moment. And Brock made the comment about Luke in the EU having his his use of the dark side and such. Luke actually goes to the dark side in the Legends continuity in Dark Empire. And the moment that happens has stuck with me for years, mainly from the audio dramatization of it. Luke dropping to his knees in front of the resurrected Emperor, throwing down his lightsaber with a clatter and saying, yes, my father's destiny is my own. This is as close to that type of chill-inducing feeling as I've gotten, I think, from anything Star Wars outside of the films, at least within Star Wars animation. This was a hell of a moment. It was barren, but that's okay. Thanks for the thanks for that. But I, I always I also think when you were talking, Nathan, I thought Jason Solo, of course, because he went to the dark side for quote unquote uh, the right reasons, and of course it took over his entire uh, thing. But it, it, what you just said there reminded me more of Jason Solo. Well, it's the idea that, that evil never thinks of it as evil, right? The best villains always feel justified in everything. And no, that's absolutely the case. And that's something I've always I've always found interesting. It's like, do the characters we identify as evil see themselves as evil, or do they see themselves as justified? And as we learned more about Darth Vader and his backstory, while it demystified him, it did make us understand why he was making the decisions he did. But one thing that I think we may see out of this is... I'll be interested to find out how the Inquisitor goes forward. Now, he says, and I, I, I found this, I, this made me smile, it's like, his master will not be pleased. Well, very true, but at the same time, he's found someone who could become a very powerful dark side adept. So, I'm wondering if the Inquisitor's real push from now on when dealing with Kanan and Ezra is to seduce Ezra to the dark side. So while all this is going on, Hera, Sabine, and Zeb are dropping off Zebo to Fulcrum. And lo and behold, Fulcrum seems to be in a Corellian Corvette that looks awfully familiar. And while it's not clearly stated, I'm pretty sure we all are going to agree that Fulcrum is probably Bale. Did I call it? Did I call it? Yeah, it's the tented four, man, clearly. I'm not going to agree yet on the whole fulcrum thing. I think it would be obvious it was meant to be Bale because we have the blockade runner here. But I find it interesting that they've hidden 
the identity so well. If you look at the credits, they don't give any credit to who did the voice of Fulcrum. And there have been sites, I believe, that uh, uh, Rebels Report, Peter Morrison's Rebels Report did a an audio breakdown of different passes over that audio that certainly makes Fulcrum sound like a woman. In fact, a specific woman. I'm not going to go so far as to say that I think it's that particular character that some are saying, but Bale almost seems too obvious. And it would seem odd because it seems like they've been, I mean, maybe it's just the whole fact that they've got these longer durations between episodes than it seemed like. Sometimes it seemed like it, sometimes it seemed like they went one straight to the next. But it would seem odd if they've been working for Fulcrum for a while, and yet Bale still needed to know about them as if he was thinking about recruiting them back in Droids in Distress. Unless there's a bigger time gap, and they did start working for Fulcrum after that, and it just seems like they've been working with Fulcrum longer than they would have been known of by Bale. I, I almost think it's too easy. You know what, Nathan? I'm, I'm kind of mad at you now, because I never even would have thought it would have been that female character. Now you've put that bug in my head and that means if there's a reveal down the line you've just ruined it for me man it's just a fan theory for the moment and it could be someone we've never even met before but i don't know (laughs) i'm remembering that piece of concept art where the character in the cockpit certainly looked like a particular character and such and rumors about a particular voice actress being supposedly cast for the show and yet no announcement being made but i don't know I mean, for all we know, it could be freaking Bo-Katan at this point because it's a disguised voice. And the whole blockade runner thing, the Corellian Corvette or whatever they're calling it, the new canon, could have just been an absolute red herring. I think it's very likely, probably 90% likely, yeah, it's probably going to be Bale. But wouldn't it be cool if it wasn't and this was actual misdirection and they weren't going for the simple and obvious just because it's directed at kids? Now, wait a second. The Tantive Four. It, it, it looks like a ten to four to me, right? But it, it, it necessarily means Bale's on there. It could be anybody. So yes, that's that's all true. Um, but there, it's the ten to four. It's it's the blockade runner. So <laughs> is it come is on. it the ten to four? Because apparently that ship they're on in Revenge of the Sith is now back to being the ten to four in Story Group canon, and it wasn't designed like the ten to four in A New Hope or the Clone Wars. Okay, and maybe those tentative people with some kind of weird thing to try to make a profit and made more than one, to paraphrase Meet the Parents. But the point I'm trying to make is they are seriously hinting at the tentative four. They could have used any other ship, okay? And they let it – it looked like the blockade runner. And it, the Revenge of the Sith point is just that, – that's neither here or there to me. They could have got – like, you know, they could have just – all these years later, they could have redone the inside of the ship. For all we know, people do the same thing with their houses back then. They could have done the same thing with the ship back then. Listen to me. Back then, a long time ago, in the galaxy far, far away. But the they could have just redesigned the ship, you know, because of, you know, stylistic choices. But my, my theory is, Nathan here, my theory, my, my thought was they are seriously giving us a hint that Fulcrum is uh, the leaders of the Alliance. It could be any of the leaders of the Alliance, and the ship could be used by many people, but it doesn't necessarily have to be Bale. It could be any of the leaders of the Alliance. But definitely, they're telling us it's that group. I want to go back, and I didn't get a chance to. I didn't even think about it before the show. I I ought to go back to Droids in Distress and look at the ship and compare it to this one because this one seemed to have some blue markings on it. I don't recall if it was blue or a New Hope red markings that we saw when we did briefly get a chance to see the Tantive Four back in Droids in Distress. I've failed in my nitpicky duties, good sirs. 
Well, I know you guys don't like to name names because I don't see how you don't name them names when we don't know if it's a spoiler or not. I mean, if you get lucky, you get lucky. So we're not allowed to, to, to say who we think these people are because at first I thought you were saying it was one female character. And then as you kept talking, then I thought, oh, it might be this female character. And then uh, I know what the I know who you were talking about now. But Brock, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about the female character. Everyone's thinking about Torn Far. <laughs> who are you thinking about? <laughs> you talking so, I mean, about? we're not allowed to. I mean, what is this? Communist Russia? We're not allowed to say who we think <laughs> it is now. I mean, we're not spoiling anything because we're not the writers. Go ahead. Well, there was that five year plan. that they OK, it was very. So Soviet. is it Ahsoka? Is it uh, not Bail again? Is it Mon Mothma, or is it who else is the third one? Uh, Princess Leia. She should Princess be Leia. doing stuff right now, probably for you know her father. So I'm thinking it's probably could be all of them because I think you were referencing the Ahsoka image in the Rebels Ghost, right? In the promo images, and Princess Leia is the number one, or it could be Mon Mothma. So I, I, I don't, I don't know, and I think that whoever it is, they're the senator as well. I think the senator doesn't really exist. It doesn't make sense that that senator would put his face out there. It's probably just some made-up uh, person, and it is Bail Organa or Princess Leia or Mon Mothma who is actually the senator. And it makes sense because they would have technology or at least knowledge of the how to tap into the Empire's uh, communications satellites or what have you to get those things out there because he would have knowledge of that. So, Well, I guess it's another one of those situations where we're going to have to wait and see. And if nothing else, this episode and the way they ended it makes me really eager to see how the series is going to pick up in January. But until that time, I want to thank you all for joining me. As always, it's been a great discussion, and you've helped me look at things from ways that I haven't before. And a special thank you to Brock for joining us. Well, thank you. Are you saying that you saw things from a different point of view? I did, sir. You should have said that. It's Star Wars. I, I got to tell you, though, we didn't get a chance to talk about how the Imperial sideburns are exactly the same length here 10 years before A New Hope. How cool was that? Or all the cool music cues. They had, they had the Phantom Menace music. They had the Cack of the Clones music. They had Yoda's theme in this episode. We have so much to talk about in these two episodes. We didn't get a chance to talk about because the discussion was so great. And I want to say you guys are doing a great job on the show. And keep it up. And I'm really glad that you asked me to be on here. And it's just a pleasure to be here. I also want to thank you all for dropping, um, uh, but I digress, a couple episodes ago. Uh, completely unnecessary, but thank you for doing so. Um, we haven't recorded in a long time, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and we hope to do so soon. So, um, But thank you for doing that, you guys. But, of course, go to Star Wars Action News. You're going to hear me there with the book reviews whenever there's a new book out. And then, of course, uh, eventually uh, I'll be uh, on the panel for now playing again. But you can always hear my, uh, as, as Barrett calls it, my sultry voice on every credits. <laughs> Uh, of of now playing um but it's just been an honor to be asked to be here and um thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do so well it was our pleasure to have you and hopefully you'll be able to join us again yeah it's always great to have you brock man we don't really get to talk very much uh you know maybe once or twice a year when it, it you know we're probably going to talk actually pretty soon when we're going to do a uh year review type show for swan or Marvelicious, you might be on one of those, you know. So that's pretty much the only time we get to talk. So it was good to hear you, man. I love your show. Keep doing what you're doing. It's it's very entertaining. I love it. And um, 
it was good to be back this week. It was good to be back this week. I'm actually going to be dropping out so a couple of the other hosts can come on in the next couple of weeks. And I'll see you guys back when, uh, what, next year, probably, when uh, they release, what, what is going to be the last four or five episodes, Nathan? Something like that, yeah. Well, shoot, Brock, you know, I mean, we don't get to talk very often either. And yes, it'll probably be that year in review coming back again. But, you know, thank you for popping up and, and giving us that continuity of credits so that this series really has yet another of those legacies to carry over from RFRN because uh, it's just it's good to have you know you behind the scenes or feeling like you're leading us into and out of each episode because yeah you weren't there for the discussion for RFRN for much of the time but you know uh, it was great to sort of feel like there was something a little more professional to the uh, the podcast than us just sitting around bantering the entire time. And I too am excited to come back in January when we get more episodes of the show and have to agree with Jonathan. This is an awesome episode to end on for the year to give us some real excitement to come back. It's certainly better than how Clone Wars left off that one year because you remember what Clone Wars ended with in December as we headed into January, right, for that hiatus. We had a sunny day in the void. How far they've come. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, Droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. I really want that microphone. (laughs) Which one? I played with Jonathan's equipment. Let me rephrase that. (laughs) Yes, please. You did what, sir? That that could be a blooper. Uh, So I played with Jonathan's recording equipment uh, when I was at his house a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it was really fun. Hello and welcome to Republic Forces. Oh my god, I didn't just do that. <laughs> wow. It's because Brock is here. You're getting yeah. that. Oh god, I'm a different. <laughs> and I'm pleased to introduce Brock. Hello and welcome to Dow Playing. I'm your host. Oh, wait a second, the wrong show. See, I was doing a callback to what you did. Okay, forget it. I'll, I'll go it clean. <laughs> and isn't this Lothal a, a callback to the Clone Wars? Wasn't this Numa's pet, uh, stuffed pet? Was a Lothal, right? Similar. It's a little like the Loth cat or whatever. Very similar. I don't think it was meant to be the same species, but a similar design. Yeah. All right. Well, you can cut that then. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the same damn cat. <laughs> 
I thought that was brilliant. I, uh, I, I was sitting there going, wow, really, was it? I, yeah. Yeah, I better go look. Okay. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And they actually did the Athorian bartender right. Uh, I mean, how many times do we see Athorians walking around in the Clone Wars, but they don't do too much with them, so we never need to see them speaking in basic or English or whatever they're going to call it in the new story group canon and all that, and needing to have something. Nathan went bye-bye. Or did I go bye-bye? Is anybody there? Son of a bitch. Oh, boy. Why don't you? <laughs> yep. I'm going to have to restart the call because now I've got you and I've got Brock and now I don't have Baron. Brock, can you hear me? I can hear you now. You dropped out in the middle of the story chat. It did just pick up the recording again. Let me get Barrett back on. I can just call him directly on here. <laughs> that was great. It was just sort of like gone. Yeah, I was like, tell Nathan, this is your version of a cliffhanger. I'm going to kill yeah, exactly. you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I so, want to hear okay. exactly why you're so there. psyched that I got the Athorian. He's back. Okay. All right, I never so heard you, anyone so impassioned about an Athorian getting it right before. All right, I'll okay. try saying it again. And then the group... Can we, can we address the TIE fighter real quick? I was going to when the uh, Inquisitor when took off on it. In it okay, but, go for it. You know what? Never mind. Go ahead. All right. Or Here, pop a, pop a beer background. or whatever. And I can't believe we're spending this much time on this pair of strong episodes complaining about <laughs> Ezra's house. <laughs> Clearly someone had laundry day at the house, shall we say, because someone's thinking about this. I did do laundry today. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> After Sabine is able to access Sibo's, uh, co- you know, unit, that, oh, that sounded bad. <laughs> <laughs> and no wonder uh, Ezra is pissed. Sibo's uh, <laughs> last name apparently is MacGuffin. That's pretty obvious, but they they managed. Couldn't let that go, Nathan. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> but he never can. He never can. <laughs> no self control. You must learn control, or they'll kick you off the podcast. No, I just edit you out. Yeah, Ernest has a really clean edit that one. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was waiting for Barrett. Oh well, this was your opportunity, man. Waiting me for Mr. Q. To do what? <laughs> Yeah, he hasn't been reading the little chat thing. <laughs> Nathan, Nathan, why does it matter? It's Sibo instead of Zebo. I don't understand. Why do you even give us that note, man? I'm just, I'm just saying because, well, and be, it, I only said it because earlier Jonathan made sure to tell us that it was Cal Travis when it's not. It's Gal. Uh, Gal. G-A-L-L. Okay, fine. Be that Travis. I'm just being an ass. I'm just In, in my I'm notes, I have Sibo with a big C instead of a Z, but I'm calling him Zebo after the third time watching it. Now you're saying it's T's S. This is it's an S sound. Blast it. Sibo. Sibo. That's how the southern gentleman would say it. Zebo. Okay, so we just <laughs> left off on uh, Nathan saying how it it may might be a little bit more natural to see the hookup between so this Ezra is and Sabine. Should and say, now Hugh Barrent. So there's something about the Sith Lords and those young Padawans touching the dark side. Is the Inquisitor by <laughs> any way Catholic? Oh, Nathan, Whoa. I knew Whoa. you were going there. Ah. You can't, you <laughs> you can't leave that, that in, man. Well, I, I, heard this, I heard the same thing, and I was thinking, okay, let's see who gets to make the comment first about, you know, the, but I didn't think it would go to the, the Catholic Church with the punchline. <laughs> 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 I, 
I, oh man, I was happy you're gonna make a joke about it. Then you went the oh no, he can't keep that. <laughs> you see the line right there, Nathan? Oh man, walked right across side. it, didn't I? Yes, I was gonna yes. jump on it too, but I wasn't gonna go with the Catholic Church uh, Church the punchline. <laughs> but that's great. I heard it too. I mean, Barrett, man, you're always with the sexual innuendo on these shows, man. Really? Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I've heard, I've heard I all don't even shows. think he. I don't even think he intends it. I think it just I know. flows it just out of him. Yeah, just like the dark side. Um, so I'm wondering if the Inquisitor's real push from now on when dealing with Canaan and Ezra is to seduce Ezra to the dark side. Again, much like a Catholic priest. I'm kidding. Oh, man. Oh, man. You could let it go the first time. So, Nathan, you want to say anything as uh, as we exit out? Yeah, sure. Um, Plug guess- away. Yeah, just leave the uh, leave the Catholic gonna... Church out of it. <laughs> and have to agree with Jonathan. This is an awesome episode to end on for the year to give us some real excitement to come back. It's certainly better than how Clone Wars left off that one year because you remember what Clone Wars ended with in December as we headed into January, right, for that hiatus. We had a sunny day in the void. How far they've come. Do you have to bring that up every damn every episode. Every time. Gascon. Gascon. Ga- is, you, got, you have stock in Gascon? Hey, you mentioned the Mortis trilogy that shall not be named earlier, so. I have a question, though. How come you guys haven't talked about that opening um, uh, thing with Ezra, with the communications thing, the transmission? They start every single show with that. What is that about? Why do we have that? Why do we keep seeing that? What is the deal behind that? That's we only on... That's only on the uh, Disney XD. Watch Disney XD, and I have no idea what it is, but it annoys well, on, the crap out of me. Yeah, it's so annoying. It's on the it's on the television station too. The only thing it's not on is the the media releases later that you can buy, like on iTunes. And, and that that annoys me more than the da 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 da. That annoys me more because, like, who is he talking to? Is he breaking the third wall? Why is it Ezra and not Kane and not even a- a- Hera? It should be Hera. She's the one giving the orders. It, it doesn't make any sense. Will you please stop? <laughs>